0: Before we start the episode, I'd like to take a moment to recommend another piece of content sponsored by OC Tanner, Influence Greatness 2020. Streaming now, the Annual Recognition and Culture Conference, is a free virtual experience with a rich library of on-demand content featuring experts, authors, researchers, and HR leaders from all across the globe. With headliners like Michael C. Bush from Great Place to Work and legendary business leader Angela Ahrens, as well as a first look at the 2021 Global Culture Report, this is one conference you can't afford to miss, because it's free. Go to octanner.com influencegreatness to register today, or tomorrow, or the next day, but don't wait longer than that. Okay, Daniel, start the episode. Welcome to The Workplace where we're hot on the trail of what makes great workplace cultures tick and what we can all do to make the ones we work in better. I'm Andrew Scarcella. This episode, we're talking with legendary poker player Annie Duke about decision-making under pressure and why embracing uncertainty is the key to better leadership. Join us after the interview for Tangible Takeaways, where we'll talk about the ideas and actions we can take with us and implement in our own workplace cultures. For two decades, Annie Duke was one of the best poker players in the world, winning the $2 million winner-take-all, invitation-only World Series of Poker Tournament of Champions in 2004, and the prestigious National Heads Up Poker Championship in 2010. These days, she's combining her poker prowess with cognitive psychology principles to help leaders make smarter decisions. Her latest book is How to Decide, Simple Tools for Making Better Choices, and it's guaranteed to make you rethink every decision you've ever made. Annie was interviewed by me, and while there weren't any playing cards in the room, let alone the building, she still managed to end up with all my money. Let's see how she did it. Annie, welcome to the workplace.
1: Oh, thanks for having me.
0: (laughs) Real excited for you to be here. Me too. Um, Let's start talking about your new book. Well, new-ish. It came out in... uh, 2018.
1: Yeah, it's so funny when you say that because I'm i literally just completing the manuscript for my next book, which will be out. It's going to take about a year because there's a lot of layout that's going to go with it. So when you say my new book, I'm, I'm actually thinking about this thing I'm writing right now.
0: <laughs> well, I'm uh, doubly excited now to hear that you have a new book because yeah. I had a lot of fun reading your uh, – was it your first book?
1: No. Well, no. so it's – it's I have written – that it was actually my fifth book but the other ones were poker-focused.
0: Right. I guess that's uh, a good yeah. distinction here. Actually, you know what? That leads into my very first question because I was going to say in, in the introduction, you say this is not a poker book.
1: Yeah, no, not at this all. This is
0: a book about decisions yeah. and uncertainty. Um, so why is uncertainty important when making decisions?
1: So the, the reason why it's, it's really important to be thinking about uncertainty in when you're making decisions is because every decision that you make is made under conditions of uncertainty. Uh, so l- let me kind of explain what the two sources of uncertainty are because there's, there's two main ones. Uh, the first just has to do with luck. Um, so despite that people say, uh, oh, I make my own luck, it's, that's not true. You have no control over luck by definition. That's what luck right. is. It's something that you can't control. But whenever you make a decision, basically what you're doing is you're you are defining in the moment of that decision what the set of possible outcomes are, and each of those outcomes is going to have some probability of occurring. It could be rare that that a particular outcome would occur. It could be it could happen quite a bit. But so so like an example of this would be um, uh, if you uh, actually I opened the book with with an example where. You can see this the influence of luck. Uh, Pete Carroll in the 2015 mm. Super Bowl. Um, it's the last. It turns out to be the last play of the game, and he calls for a pass play. So once he's made that decision, what he's done is defined what the set of possible outcomes are and how often those will occur. So we can think about like uh, it could be caught for a touchdown, it could be incomplete, it could be intercepted. So let's just focus on intercepted. In this particular case, interception is going to occur about 1% to 2% of the time when you pass the ball in that Super situation. Super low odds. Super low. But that's where the influence of luck is. Because, yes, you've made it so that that outcome is rare, but rare still means it's going to happen about 2% of the time. Uh, and as people famously know, we saw the 2% in that particular situation. So when you're making your a decision, you're – kind of determining what's the probability I get an outcome that I like and what's the probability that I get an outcome that I don't like. Uh, and the better the decision, the more likely it is that you're going to like the outcome that you get. But luck intervenes in afterwards and it determines which one you actually observe,
0: mm-hmm.
1: which one actually occurs. So that's the first uncertainty. Um, and then the second form of uncertainty is hidden information. So there's just there's stuff we know and stuff we don't know. And in fact, if you kind of think about it, it's like the stuff we know like, fits on the head of a pin. <laughs> and then the stuff we don't know is like the size of the universe. And obviously that creates a lot of uncertainty because we're making decisions where we don't have uh, perfect information in order to be able to know exactly what the ideal decision might be. The thing that I think is interesting about these two sources of uncertainty is you can't really do anything about luck. I don't have any control over whether the 1% happens or not. But I can actually do something about the other form of uncertainty, which is the hidden information. Because I can start to interact with the world in a way which, where I'm more and more aware of the fact that there's this big asymmetry, right? There's very little that I know and lots and lots that I don't know. And even in the stuff that I know, there's inaccuracies in there. Uh, and I can start figuring out a way to repair the inaccuracies, like fill in the cracks and then also broaden my knowledge base so that every decision I make is better informed.
0: So it's about embracing the uncertainty?
1: Embrace it, because there it is. and if You can't you, escape it. You can't escape it. And it the problem is that when you do try to escape it, when you try to think, no, I know for sure, two kind of really bad things happen. I mean, well, there's a few bad things that can happen, but one of the uh, main things is that You stop, uh, in the way that you're interacting with the world, you stop actually opening yourself up to people who might tell you things that you don't know. So if I say to you that I'm 100% certain of something, that I know this is the way to go, particularly if I'm in a leadership position, the chances that I'm going to hear dissent to that statement are just smaller. People will very often not speak up for a variety of reasons. One is that uh, they might decide that they're wrong because you are so certain and now they don't offer the information that they have. Mm-hmm. They might decide that you're wrong, but they don't want to embarrass you, or they don't want to be a squeaky wheel. Maybe right. they want to be a team player, like consensus has developed in the room, and even though they have a different point of view, they don't want to say so. So there's all sort of, sorts of things that go wrong when you start to think that it, or think that you can be certain about things in terms of how much of that universe of stuff you don't know you're actually going to get exposed to Then the other thing is that when you think that you have more control over the way that the world turns out, uh, two things happen. One's perspective, which is as you're thinking about a decision, you say, I'm sure it's going to work out this way, and you kind of don't explore the other ways that things could happen, and then you're wholly unprepared for them. You're not thinking about how might things go wrong or in a way that I don't want or in a way that maybe I haven't thought about that Yes, it might be low percentage or it could be high percentage, but I should be thinking about those so I have a plan in place in advance. And then retrospectively, when we start to ignore uncertainty, we actually take very, very bad lessons from our experience because we start to think that you know, bad outcomes come from bad decisions or good outcomes come from good decisions. But actually, all four quadrants exist. Because of the influence of luck, I could make a good decision and have a bad outcome. Mm -hmm. I could make a good decision and have a good outcome. Bad decision, bad outcome. Bad decision, good outcome. And if I'm not fully exploring all four of those quadrants, what can happen is I could get, for example, like a very lucky good result and think that I'm supposed to be repeating those actions and I'm going to be pretty certain that I should be repeating those actions. Or I could get a very unlucky bad result like Pete Carroll did. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, people think you shouldn't pass in that situation.
0: And they think he's a terrible coach. And
1: they think he's a terrible coach, which, by the way, he's not. And by the way, mathematically, that was a very good play. If people want to look at my book, they can see that I go through the math of that play. Oh, it
0: makes total sense.
1: Yeah. So, so the the thing is that the, the only thing that we can learn from is experience. The experiences of the way that our decisions turn out and the experience of interacting with other people and having them offer us the things that they know or their perspectives or the way that they think about the world – and when we don't embrace uncertainty, we're we're really ruining both of those paths to becoming a better decision maker.
0: Hmm. What's your advice to leaders, it, we, we, given this knowledge? Is it just more humility, or like, yeah? You know, what, what's the practical advice you would give them?
1: So I'm a big fan of humility, but <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I think that. It, I like to talk about this, this concept of decision hygiene,
0: mm.
1: uh, which is that we need to understand, like, just like in the 1800s, when people were, were just starting to figure out, oh, oh, it's kind of bad to touch a dead body and then go and touch a live patient mm-hmm. because then that live patient turns into a dead body. Um, I like to think about that idea of how do we make sure that we're washing our hands you know, in between patients. And I think about kind of the the two sources that can really inhibit people's willingness to tell you what they know. The first is expression of your own beliefs, and the second is knowing how something turned out. So let me sort of I can tackle those separately. So here's a, a really good example. So so as a leader, you get up and you're you're trying to think strategically, and you're working through some sort of problem and. Uh, It could be something as simple as uh, who you want to hire into a position, um, or it could be something, you know, much bigger, like, you know, what's the strategic plan over the next two years? So let's do something simple like who do we hire? Um, Generally, when you get up to have a discussion in the room, what happens is here are the candidates that we've interviewed And this is the person that I think is really good. And here's sort of the other things about the other people that I kind of think about them. Uh, Here's the good stuff and the bad stuff. Here's the things that I think about the candidate. That's my preferred candidate, so on and so forth. And you offer all these things about the way that you think about it. And then you say to the room, so what do you think? And the problem, of course, is that you're never going to get what they actually think anymore because you've offered your own opinion.
0: Right, you've colored their... Their and decision.
1: not because, by the way, they're sycophants. I mean, certainly some people are, but like most people aren't. It's because your, your beliefs infect the minds of other people and they don't even know that it's happening. And, and pe- we do this in little ways every day. Like if I were to send you an opinion piece that I wanted, I wanted you to read also so that we could have a discussion about it. Like when was the last time you sent somebody an opinion piece and said, could you read this? And let me know what you think.
0: No, it's usually, uh, oh, can you believe this?
1: Right. So you you, you never you don't send it, in, it, it with a neutral frame, right? You're never just like, could you read this and tell me what you think? It's, could you read this? I think this is really good about it and this is really bad about it. And I, th- they didn't use this data and so on and so forth. And I think the reason is that naturally we all think that the things we think are really important data in terms of being able to have a coherent conversation about it. Um, and that's true, and you you should be able to offer your own opinion, but not before you've heard what the other person has to say. So one of the things that we want to do in leadership roles, and this is particularly problematic for leaders because leaders' beliefs are more infectious than, uh, say, an intern's belief because the weight that the team gives to what the leader thinks is obviously going to be greater, and so it, it just becomes a bigger infection and a bigger problem is – As much as possible, try to solicit the initial opinions or the initial forecasts or whatever it is that you're trying to get from your team separately, not when you're all in a room together. So uh, just as a simple example, you're hiring candidates. You have four Mm -hmm. people interview the candidate. Don't allow them to discuss the candidate uh, before you get their um, feedback. Send them a sheet which says, you know, you have to forecast how good a cultural fit do you think that this person is, how long do you think they might stay with the company, you know, whatever it is that you care about in terms of that position. Um, Make them give you that forecast, give them a rationale as to sort of why they think these things. Get that separate, put it all together, anonymize it, share it with the team, and then come together in a room.
0: Yeah, it's almost like you want to reduce the amount of information that they're getting,
1: In a communal fashion,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: right? And you want to get what they think before they know what anybody else thinks. So it's a a little, it's like washing your hands. It's not allowing uh, there to be cross-contamination of beliefs. And now also you're anonymizing it. So you lose a little bit of this hierarchical issue as well, right? So that kind of has to do with the belief side. On the outcome side, when we know how something turned out, like I said, we like the world to make sense, right? We don't want to think that that, Play ended up in an interception and it was actually the most amazing call ever. That's, it's a little bit hard for us to square. It causes some cogn- cognitive dissonance for us. So when I'm soliciting feedback from you about a decision that I've made in the past, it's very helpful if as I'm doing that, I don't let you know how things turned out or particularly if it's iterative, what I decided. So, like, I'll I'll give you an example from poker. Let's say that I want to know your opinion about how I played a hand. Now, the hand has occurred in the past. So, I know whether I won or lost the hand. I know every decision I made during the hand. And I know what my opponent did in response to every decision that I made. Right? So, I have all of this information. Now, just like with your beliefs, I'm going to have a tendency to believe that that information is actually really important for you to be able to analyze the hand. So I'm going to offer you that information. I'm going to tell you the hand all the way till the end until you find out whether I win or lose, and then I'm generally going to say, like, so what do you think? But here's the problem, is that part of the information asymmetry that we have, part of the incomplete information we have whenever we're in the moment of making a decision is how things turn out. So if I offer you that, you're now making a decision. You're telling me what you think of my decision where you're not in the same state of knowledge that I was at the time. And having that knowledge is going to color the way that you view the decisions that should be made because you know whether they worked out or not. So that's two bad things that are happening. And what I'm trying to do is get your opinion about my decision-making, trying to get you into a state of knowledge that's as close to the state of knowledge that I was in at the time. And I certainly don't want to color it with you happen to know it got intercepted. So the way that I would do it is I would say, so this person uh, raised in front of me, and I looked down and I had ace-queen. I would tell you relevant details about that player. Uh, and I would tell you what I, how I thought that player viewed me because those are things that are important and that's knowledge that I had on the time. But I would not tell you what I did with the hand. I would say, what do you think I should have done? But I know. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then you would tell me. And maybe it would be the same thing that I did. Maybe it wouldn't. We would have a discussion about Fold. it. And maybe, (laughs) I I probably wouldn't fold in that situation. No. (laughs) But but maybe you say, oh, I think you should fold, and then I can ask you why without telling you what I did. And then once we've had the discussion, I could say, okay, so here's what I did, and then I'll tell you what they did in response, and then I stop again. Mm -hmm. I say, "Well, well, then what would you do? And I do this all the way till the end of the hand. So I'm never giving you knowledge that I didn't have at the time, and I'm not distorting your opinion by causing you to be in a situation where you're trying to make the outcome make sense.
0: Hindsight really distorts our perception of events, doesn't it?
1: Yes. It, hindsight is 2020, but it's actually not. It needs really thick Coke bottle glasses. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Um, you touched on bias a little bit in there when uh, talking about hiring people. Um, it seems like it's... You know, these days everyone wants to be more self-aware, to be uh, to know their own biases, but we're often our own worst enemies. Um, you know, confirming our own beliefs as much as we try to break them down. How can we get past those defenses and you know attack our own bias?
1: Yeah. So I I think there there's two things. I mean, the, the short story is we can't. <laughs> um, in the sense of. It's just not the case that if you have read up on the different biases, confirmation bias, disconfirmation bias, availability bias, illusion of control, like there's a huge list. Go to the Wikipedia page. There's right. hundreds.
0: Memorize it, it's not going to help. <laughs> no,
1: it's too many. <laughs> so if you go and you you actually know about them, and maybe in fact you're very good at spotting it in other people because you're aware of it.
0: Well, That's like, what the list does. It helps you yeah, see like it you're, in other you're people. You're watching
1: CNN and you're like, bias,
0: bias, 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 bias,
1: <laughs> right? So... So, but, but the fact is that we, we tend to be pretty blind to our own bias. We have a very big bias blind spot. Uh, it's actually wor- worse if you're smarter uh, because a lot of this has to do with kind of the narratives that we're spinning, uh, the way that we're uh, sort of interpreting data to support our stories, the way that we articulate our, our beliefs. And obviously, uh, more intelligent people are better at spinning those kinds of narratives. So there's all sorts of research, some of it's in my book, from mm-hmm. Keith Stanovich and um, Dan Kahan, for example, uh, uh, Bernard you uh, no, Bernard mile There's there's just a lot of um, uh, evidence out there that kind of supports this idea. So so the number one thing is don't think that if you read like Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman that you're going to be cured. That's that's not oh, the case. man, so, I read that book. <laughs> You won't be cured. So so I think what it has to do with actually sort of understanding what the limitations of the way that we process information is and really setting our lives up in a way where we're just interacting with disagreement as much as possible because disagreement is the discipline for bias because what my allowing myself to expose myself as much as possible to your opinion does for me uh, and, and an opinion that's unsullied by my own beliefs or, or the way that things turned out, is it allows me to get as much access to the outside view as possible. So the outside view is like what's true of the world in general or the way that somebody else might view the situation that I'm in. The inside view is me living in my own beliefs and my own perspective and my own opinion. And this is naturally the way that we process the world. So what's true of the world in general or the way that other people view our, our situation is going to be what is the best discipline is going to have a huge disciplining effect on our own bias. So a lot of what I've talked about in terms of this decision hygiene allows you to interact with the world in a way that's going to expose you as much as possible to people disagreeing with you, which is the opposite of the way that we generally interact with the world, right? I mean, not just in terms of, I'm going to tell you my beliefs, you know, as I'm trying to get your opinion about something or I'm going to tell you how something worked out. But we also gravitate toward people who agree with us, right? We all fall into these echo chambers. This is what we know from social media. So as much as possible, like really working to expose yourself to diverse opinions and then interact with the people who hold those diverse opinions in a way that will allow those opinions to bloom in front of you. So that's number one. And then number two, I think, really has to do with Turning tribe to your advantage. So we hear a lot right now in our current political climate about the the destructive nature of tribe. Mm. You know, politics has become incredibly tribal. It's us versus them. Um, a lot of things about like purity testing, right? Like I could hold... Uh, 90 opinions that agree with you, and on the 91st, if I disagree with you, I'm out,
0: disqualified.
1: <laughs> disqualified. So, so we hear a lot about this kind of destructive nature of tribe, but tri- tribe, look, evolution wouldn't have se- selected for tribalism if, if it didn't actually have purpose. If it didn't, if there was wasn't good stuff that that was able to come out of it, um, and there is good stuff that's able to come out of it because every human being really needs. To feel like they belong to something, and also they need to feel like they're distinct from other groups. I really recommend kind of the paradox. It is. I I I, I recommend people follow uh, Jay Van Bavel on um, Twitter. He's a professor at NYU and he does a lot of work in this sort of tribe and identity and this area. And I, I, he's a really really good follow um, on, on this particular topic. But so so let's think about it. Like human beings are like weak. If you were to, uh, on the, you know, Savannah, if you were to meet a wild animal that was of your size, would you be like, cool, let me get in a fight with it?
0: Oh, I would probably freeze.
1: (laughs) Right. Even if it were smaller, by the way. And that's because we're not very strong. What we have as an advantage as human beings is these very big and social brains. And that allowed us to say, look, we have these physical disadvantages compared to a hyena, uh, which is actually a little bit smaller than we are but would eat us, um, uh, win in a fight for sure. <laughs> but but we can band together into these very social groups uh, where we form common purpose, and that's going to allow us to actually survive. And obviously that was a very powerful survival mechanism, and we kind of took over the world with that particular survival mechanism. So we can think about how do we use tribe then to our advantage, the sense of wanting to belong to something and the sense of wanting to be distinct. And the way that we sort of default to is, oh, we all agree. We all talk about how much we agree. The other people are evil. And so, yay, we're cool. But we could make an agreement that the way that we're defining tribe is that we're the tribe that's really amazing at having rational discussions about things that we disagree on, at not falling into the trap of just dismissing you and, and saying, well, you're just dumb or you're evil or you're not informed, of recognizing that it's possible that we could both have really good intentions, both have the exact same information and come to different conclusions about it and that the discussion about those different conclusions is going to be really valuable to both of us because it's impossible that either of us is 100% correct about anything. There's just too much uncertainty. And we can now define ourselves that way. So, again, like I go back to uh, the way that that worked in poker. Very early on in my career, uh, Eric Seidel, who's an incredible poker player, he's won like $40 million playing tournament poker, basically defined this idea for me that uh, if he, I wanted to have a discussion with him, that it, it couldn't just be b- talking about how everybody else played really bad and I played great and I, if I ever lost, I got unlucky, which is very not useful. Um, And instead I had to talk to him about the mistakes that I made where I thought that someone might have outplayed me. I could say like another player is doing something and I don't understand it. Can we talk about it? Um, I'm not, I I made this play and I won the hand, but I think there was a better route. I'm not sure if I should have been in the hand in the first place. Notice these all go against our natural bias to want to sort of confirm our own self-narrative about what our competence is, right? But he let me know that to have conversations with him, this is what I had to do. Hmm. So now he's defined what belongingness means in terms of being in his group. And in order for me to belong to that group, by now, as I'm sitting at the poker table, I have to view the poker table differently because I have to be really actively looking for my own errors, really actively looking at the other players to try to understand what, what I don't understand and what I can then go talk to Eric about. So that's the belongingness thing. Then on this distinctiveness side, I would walk through the halls and hear other players telling what are called bad beat stories, and they'd be like, oh, that other person was an idiot, and I can't believe Mm -hmm. I lost because of blah, 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 blah. And now I got the distinctiveness as well. But the belongingness and distinctiveness was pegged on being willing to disconfirm my beliefs. And that, if I had to think about what was the main principle, it was that you should always be skeptical of your own beliefs, you should always be skeptical of your own opinions, You should always be looking for the opportunities to disconfirm the things you believe because those are the big leaps that you're going to make in your own learning. And you can take that that kind of lesson to any kind of group, to any kind of team and turn tribe sort of to the good in that sense.
0: Well, what's a, a book or article or tweet that you read recently that's really stuck with you that you still think about?
1: Oh, well, there's there's a couple of books right now that that just came out, uh, so they're new that I'd really recommend people read. One is Indistractable by Nir Eyal, and um, and that's about really kind of taking control of your own attention. Hmm. Uh, which I think is really necessary <laughs> mm-hmm. right now with all this, sort of the barrage of dings that we get every single day. And that's a really wonderful book. Another is Range by da- David Epstein, and it's really about uh, the power of being a generalist. And when we think about inside view and outside view, like I really kind of think about that book in that frame as how can you be looking at things from as many different mm. kind of angles as you possibly can so that, you know, and, and we started to see this like in in – Hedge funds, they'll hire like a biologist, right? To start to try to get like, how do you get the range of, of perspectives um, and why it's such a powerful tool for you. That's also in the vein of, of uh, for example, Phil Tellock's work, which he wrote, Super Fact Forecasting, which is another book that I would recommend. And the third book that I really love right now that just came out is called Rebooting AI. Mm-hmm. And that's by Gary Marcus and uh, Ernie Davis. And it's really a wonderful book, which is very—I uh, would say—it takes a somewhat skeptical view toward um, a lot of the AI hype. Uh, not that they don't think that AI is is really useful and a really important thing to work on. In fact, they have a company that develops AI. What they're concerned about is that the hype around some of some of these deep learning machines um, is overblown, and that. We need to understand what machines can and cannot do in order to actually build better machines. So it's just, it's such a wonderful, wonderful book um, that I would really recommend it for anybody who's interested in artificial intelligence. It sounds
0: fascinating. Yeah. What's one technology that we should use less and what's one that we should be using more?
1: Oh, you know, I hate, I hate to answer that because I feel like that's so individual. You know, um, it can be
0: a personal answer.
1: Yeah, like I I wouldn't want to answer that for for everybody. I mean, I would say you should use your phone less in the car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that I would go. say is like there a blanket <laughs> as a totally blanket statement, I would say. I mean, look, personally in my life, there's no phones allowed at meals. Um and I personally find it when when i see when i when i look over at a table in a restaurant and like all the people sitting at the table are sitting on their smartphones there's something that i find very heartbreaking about that it may be because i'm anchored to a time when that couldn't possibly have happened mm-hmm. because when i was young there weren't smartphones um but i do think that you know sitting at a table and and looking people in the eye and having that Conversation, at least for me personally, has so much value. So I would love to see a more deliberative use of, of that particular technology. Um, just because I, I'd like it to be that they don't own us, that we, kind of, that we kind of control them, which is part of what Indistractable is about, by the way, which is why I oh, think cool. it's such a, a wonderful, wonderful book. Um, so I would definitely say just not necessarily less or more on like smartphones, but more intentional on smartphones. Um, What's something that I think we should use more of? Well, you know, technology is such a funny thing because, you know, technology is like also just like building fires with a Flintstone or something Mm -hmm. like that. Like I would actually love to see people going back and really understanding some of the older technologies to really understand sort of at at the base of things, sort of how are these calculations being a, you know, happening because I think that gives you you a fuller understanding of, like, what the technology you're using is. Like, I'd love kids to learn how to use, like, an abacus, right, so that they can kind of really understand, like, what what are tens and what are ones and what are hundreds and how would I actually do this without this technology in my hand as a shortcut Um, because I think that that kind of deeper understanding that you get from having to go back to some of the older technologies, I think it's useful and it would make our interactions with the newer technologies actually more
0: productive. I love that. It doesn't have to be a new technology. No. (laughs) Annie, this was wonderful. I had a great time chatting with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. Now it's time for Tangible Takeaways, where we take big ideas down into the depths of a remote patch of the Pacific Ocean in a third-generation Archeron Project isofloat-encased bathyscape, capable of withstanding pressures of more than 114 megapascals at over 11,000 meters below the surface. Where the inky blackness hides creatures so unimaginable, simply seeing one threatens your very sanity. The first is to embrace uncertainty. If we get trapped into thinking that bad decisions only lead to bad outcomes, and good decisions only lead to good outcomes, we're only seeing half the possibilities. Good decisions can lead to bad outcomes, and bad decisions can lead to good outcomes. That's the nature of uncertainty. And if we don't embrace it, we'll be forever unprepared for what happens when things don't go as planned. The second is that to be a great leader, you must be willing to be wrong about anything and everything. As Annie puts it, to be willing to disconfirm your beliefs. That's how we grow as leaders. Not by sticking to our guns, but by being skeptical. Being biased towards our own beliefs is only human. But through practice, we can train ourselves to push back against our bias, break out of the echo chamber, and open our minds to possibilities we didn't consider. Solutions we couldn't see. How? By exposing ourselves to more diverse perspectives, more diverse opinions, more diverse people, and by letting people make their own decisions without being influenced by yours. If you're discussing candidates for an important position, don't tell people who you like and why. Just give them the facts and let them decide. Then tell them what you think. As soon as you reveal your opinion, it'll color theirs. Keep your cards close to your vest as they say in the poker world. I think, I don't really know. I'm more of a battleship guy. The third is that you can't be lucky. You can only get lucky. And getting lucky certainly doesn't mean you're going to keep getting lucky. There's a whole theory about this called the hot hand fallacy. Perhaps you've heard of it? The star player is on fire, hitting all the shots, even from downtown. Nice. So people keep giving them the ball, assuming they'll stay on fire. Hence, hot hands. The original study, conducted in 1985, suggests that it's all in people's heads that people are simply prone to seeing patterns in randomness, and that even star players are no more likely to make a shot after making a shot than they are after missing one. However, more recent research challenges the original study's conclusions, analyzing even larger data sets in multiple sports and finding a small, yet statistically significant effect, of hot-handedness. Which means... knew it i just might have a chance against Annie duke next time right guys right right this episode was written and read by yours truly with additional writing production and sound design by daniel foster smith if you like this episode or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and of course, subscribe to The Workplace on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a burning question about workplace culture or a story about why your workplace culture is the best or worst, send it to TheWorkplace at octanner.com. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. O.C. Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single, modular suite of apps for influencing and improving employee experiences through recognition, through recognition, career anniversaries, well-being, leadership, and more. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, go to octanum.com.